Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello everybody and welcome back. Um, Before I begin talking about the fabulous Glyn Johns, I want to tell you all about my incredible book launch the other night. Uh, My book, full of photographs, gorgeous photos, it's titled My Life in Pictures. And it starts off really from the start of my modelling career, wearing ghastly clothes. And of course, they only had to progress and get better and better and shorter and shorter. It was such a fantastic night. There was, uh, what, 200 people there? Yeah. And um, I mean, you had some amazing guests who who came to to celebrate. Twiggy came with her husband, Lee. Uh, Ronnie Wood came with his wife. And Roger Taylor was there. And so was Jimmy Page. Yeah. It was quite it yeah. was quite packed with really wonderful, exciting and w- fabulous people. It was. And uh, it was the first um, chance I had to see the book. And I can promise you it is spectacular. The photographs in it are amazing. The quality uh, of the book is excellent. So if you haven't pre-ordered it, uh, yet you've still got um, an opportunity to do so. Uh, so if you go to pattyboyd.co.uk, there is a link there um, where you can uh, pre-order the book, and I highly recommend it because it's fantastic. Um, but enough about the book. Tell us about our guests on today's episode. Today, you're going to hear the very, very talented, hugely interesting, and wonderful friend. Uh, Glyn Johns. Glyn is a recording engineer, producer, who produced The Stones, The Beatles and countless other musicians. And I adore him. He's got a great story. He's very fun and um, I hope you enjoy him too. Yes, and if you have seen the film Get Back, you will, you would have seen Glyn. He, uh, he actually plays a really key part um, in that whole story. So if you've seen that film, you're about to hear from him uh, in this episode. So this is Cocktails with Patty and Glyn Johns. Glyn. Darling. <laughs> My lovely old friend, Glyn. Do you know, I was looking in an old diary of mine, and in 65, I think, or 66, or 67, I've written Olympic Studios, Jackie Lomax. So that must have been when I first met you. I don't ever remember working with Jackie Lomax. Oh. So, no. You got that wrong. Um, I I just imagine, because you spent quite a bit of time in um, Olympic. Oh, that was my home. I spent more time there than in my own house. Um, I remember meeting you. You attended a session I was doing with George, and I think it was a Joe Cocker session. Oh, really? Pretty sure. I I mean, I, I can remember you coming in the room in the control room. I was working in the smaller of the two studios at Olympic, and I'm pretty sure it would have, would have been Joe Cocker, or it might have been Howling Wolf. Did you attend a Howling Wolf session? No, must have been Joe okay, Cocker. Okay, well, it wasn't that then. Well, it was a Joe Cocker session. I remember turning around and seeing George and then seeing this 
exquisite looking thing standing in the doorway and you had a you had a, one of those fur Russian hats on, you know, I don't know what you call them. Oh, my God. And you you remember what away. I was wearing. <laughs> well, yeah, you were very beautiful. And one didn't see beautiful women that often because I spent my life in a room with no windows with ugly musicians. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I've sort of forgotten how we all were in those days. But after seeing a bit of the film Get Back, I see you, handsome young boy, and you look so young, Glyn. Well, I was young. Well, I, I suppose we were all young. I was, we? Yeah, we all were once. Uh, I was 26. Oh, were you? Yeah, right. in January 69. I was, my birthday was the following month. I was just still 26. Yeah. yeah. I think it was maybe two years ago, or maybe three years ago, I can't remember now, and your autobiography came out. Oh, it was a bit more than that, five or six years ago. Oh, yeah. Was it? yeah, and it's not really, well, it isn't. It's sort of more of a comment. I mean, it was supposed to be my comment on the music industry and how it had changed in 50 years. Uh, and obviously I used my own experiences to, to relate that. Um, it wasn't really meant to be an autobiography, but it, I suppose it ended up being that. Yeah. I think so. I absolutely adored it, as you know. I loved that book. I thought it was wonderful. It gave such an insight, a clear insight to the music business. Yeah, and that was the idea. Recording. Really, yeah. 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 And also, <laughs> it was very, very clear, Glyn, that you do not take any prisoners. You just, well, if you think something's right, you go for it, and if it's wrong, you don't care. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I suppose I haven't always been the most popular individual <laughs> as a result of that, but it seems to have worked quite well. I remember getting to a point in my career where I I realised, I tried being nice for a while and it just didn't work. <laughs> so, <laughs> don't. No, well, being nice to the musicians didn't work. You didn't get the best out of them. Well, uh, the more sympathetic you become to an artist, very often it, it sort of backfires. Who's, I mean, who's, who was the most difficult um, artist or group that you've um, produced? I, I would never say that any of the bands that I've worked with were difficult but there's always one individual in every band that's that's uh, tricky a, a bit tricky can yeah. be yeah and obviously that can vary depending which side of bed everyone gets out of or how much sleep they've had or yeah. how much pressure there is on them um and I'm not going to name names <laughs> I'm not going to no. go into that I don't think that's fair I, you know, I've always thought that, that, that one's role as an engineer or producer is a bit like you have a sort of code. I've, I have a code that's applicable to doctors. In other words, you don't discuss your patient's ailments. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I've always tried to stick by that. That's very fair. I think yeah. that's very fair. Yes. Well done. I think one tends to see people at their best and worst when they're under stress. And the degree of stress varies. Part of your job as a producer is to try and reduce the stress. Uh, but... A lot of behaviour is forgivable because of what's going on and there could be all kinds of things going on that you're not even really aware of. So, yeah, you have to, you have to forgive people the odd outburst of bad behaviour. Yes, yeah. That's very sympathetic of you. I'm terribly sympathetic. Oh, <laughs> Now, yeah. I mean, recording has obviously changed over the years from when you first started. I remember seeing a desk... I mean, it was just so, so long yeah. with all the different um, microphones coming through into the studio. 
Um, I'm not describing this very clearly because I don't know what I'm saying. But well, that'll do. But it must have changed. It's changed Like everything's got smaller. No, no, in fact, well, the, I suppose the major difference now is that people can make a record in their bedroom if they want because of the facility that digital recording provides. You can make a record on your laptop in your bedroom. So the sound doesn't matter? Well, of course, evidently not. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. uh, um, of course, the sound matters. It, it, I personally think that is the main advantage of what's gone on because a lot of young men and women are able to express themselves without having to be discovered or without having to have a massive budget. That's fantastic. Yes. However, my boring uh, opinion is that, that what has been sacrificed in that is pretty horrendous, really. The, the main thing is that people don't play together anymore when they record. They record one instrument at a time, invariably. And that's all very well and good, and there's a good skill to that, without any question. And some great records have been made that way, I'm sure. But what's missing is the interaction between musicians that you get when they all play together, which is a subliminal thing. It's, not it's never spoken about, or uh, a lot of people aren't even aware of it. But if, if you were to record a string quartet, for example, you wouldn't record them one at a time. <laughs> uh, no. and, and the same thing applies to any piece of music in my book, um, any type of music, because there is an emotional response to what's going on around you. And it's, if you overdub on something as an individual, the track's already existing and you play your part, then you're being affected by what you're hearing, you're emotionally responding, but what you're doing isn't affecting what's gone before, it can't. No. Are you with me? Yes, yes. So you're only getting half the picture, basically. And since music is, without any question, about emotion of one sort or another, um, the more clinicised it becomes, the less emotive it is. Has to be. Yeah. 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 So you'll still get an emotive performance from a singer, perhaps, or not perhaps, almost certainly, I'm sure. But the response from the, from the musicians is, well, there isn't one, because they've already played their part. Yeah, that sounds a bit of a shame, and, really. Yeah, yeah, it's, well, it's, I mean, even if you overdub a guitar solo, which we've done for years, and yeah, I mean, we, we do in the way I work still, it, it really is... You know, the difference, if they were able to play that solo with the rhythm section playing along with them, it, it, the rhythm section would react to it without yes. any question if it was a blinding solo. You know, they would definitely, their whole emotive content would, would raise, rise <laughs> enormously, I think. Yeah. All right, then that leads me on to my next question, which is the difference between the, the musicians when they're on stage playing together in yeah. front of an audience, live audience, compared to them playing the same thing in a studio, in a recording studio, which normally is better? Or is that dependent on the evening? Uh, it's, well, first of all, when you're working in the room in a studio and you're refining something, you're playing it over and over again <clears throat> in order to de invariably develop your part because 
it, it hasn't been written before. I mean, in a lot of the cases, the people that I used to work with, the song may have been demoed by Pete Townsend, for example, with The Who or whatever, but that would only be a very rough guide as to what it would end up being when it was performed by the band. With the Rolling Stones, the songs would be written in the room, rather like in the Beatles' Let It Be movie, yeah. similar sort of thing. And that everyone's part would be developed by playing it over and over and over again until it became an, a proper arrangement. And you were able, you could play back what you'd done and you refine it from what you're hearing and say, well, maybe I should, you should play something different in the bridge or whatever it is, or maybe move the bridge to come earlier in the song or what, what it changed the whole thing. So you're developing something and the idea is to try and capture the performance of that song before it goes over the top and gets bored rigid with it. And that's quite a fine art, really. Now, playing live is another thing. You count it off and you play it and it's done. <laughs> and hopefully it goes well. Some nights are great, some nights it isn't. You play the same song for three nights in a row, it would be different each yeah. time. Uh, and one will be better than the other two, probably. Interesting, isn't it? Because it, it, it's not really dependent on the audience, or is it sometimes? Oh, I'm listen, no? I, I, have, I have no question about the fact that, of course, it's dependent on, yeah. on the audience. Massively. If, if the audience is responding positively to what you're doing, you're going to get a buzz from it, you know, and you're going to play better. Yeah. And actually, even if, even if you played it better the night before, it doesn't matter. So long as, so long as the audience is still getting off on it, it doesn't really matter. The number of times, I'm sure you've had the same thing, where I've gone backstage after seeing somebody play to congratulate them on, on a fantastic night or whatever, and they're all sitting there with their heads in their laps because they thought it was rubbish, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> no, I so the arse is very rarely Yes. Whether and equally, I've gone back thinking, well, I don't know quite what to say because it wasn't very good, and they're all going, eh, you know, it's marvellous. Isn't fun, that man. so odd? Yeah. Glenn, I remember, yeah. you know, I used to go backstage after Eric had uh, done a performance, yeah. and to me, it was absolutely wonderful, far better than the night before. Yeah. And I'd tell him, and he would say, no, it was dreadful. Didn't you hear this? <laughs> no, I didn't hear that at all. <laughs> and then I start doubting what I hear. Yeah. So it becomes very confusing. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very confusing. Uh, God knows what you do about that. I mean, it's more often than not, the artist and I would disagree about the performance, you know, very often. I mean, I've made live albums with people and gone back and gone, you know, that was the night, you know, this, that was the performance. Yes. They're going, what are you talking about? It's rubbish, you know. It's How weird. Amazing. Uh, How interesting. Anyway, the they thing hear is, something that you don't hear. Or they well, put the, they are hearing coming. something you don't hear. You're hearing, they're hearing a completely different mix on stage than is coming out of the PA. They've got, they've got their own little wedge in front of them, little loudspeaker in front yeah. of them, with a, with a mix that they want to hear, which somebody on the side of the stage is controlling. And they may not hear half the band, they may not want to. Eric might only want to hear the drums or he might, who knows? I don't know what Eric's ch choice of what he hears oh, really? is, but they don't necessarily hear everything. They don't hear the whole band? Playing. Not necessarily. They could do. They could have whatever they want. But some people don't. They want to hear something, one of the instruments a lot louder than the others, so that that's because that's what they're playing to. How interesting. But, Glyn, uh, when you started, did you start listening to and recording and engineering rock and roll music, or did you, were you classically trained to record classical musicians, like um, George Martin was really, wasn't he? That was his first yes. intro. Um, 
I started work in an independent recording studio in London, in Portland Place, that was by far and away the best studio in Europe. I mean, it was independent studio in Europe. The net result of that was it got an incredible cross-section of music through it. Yeah. We, we also had a remote unit that we'd, we'd go out and record symphony orchestras or whatever, or 14 strings and a harpsichord, or, or you could be doing an Omo commercial, or you could be doing the music for Wagon Train, the American TV series, or a jazz trio, or, I mean, just literally everything and anything which was therefore the most brilliant training. I, I wasn't, when I got the job, I had no, I knew, no knowledge of recording whatsoever. So uh, I had had a, a training as a chorister from the age of eight. So I was, that was my formal training in, in music. Mm -hmm. And then by the time I was 15, I was, I'd been drawn to folk music and, and skiffle and, then rock and roll, and sort of, it was a natural progression for anybody my age, in fact. How did you know you wanted to be a producer? I didn't want to be a producer, particularly. <laughs> I didn't even want to be a recording engineer. I was offered a job in a studio by a quirk of fate. Yeah. Uh, and it interested me because I was interested in music. I mean, that was my hobby. Music was my hobby as a teenager. Right. It had never entered my mind to, to have it as a profession in any shape or form. So it was just a series of coincidences and good fortune that led me to the job at IBC. And I, I was a singer and I thought, well, if I take the job, I will find out about the music business about which I knew absolutely nothing. And I will get discovered as a singer. That was the sort of idea, which was obviously proved not to be very successful. <laughs> 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 Never mind, move Never on. Mind, move try right try along, another yes. array. Exactly. <laughs> I did, <clears throat> so I trained as an engineer for a couple of years. As I started in 1959, rock and roll had begun and just sort of was beginning to take hold in the United States of America. And there were the old, there were old trickles of rock and roll going on here, but nothing really that was worth much. I mean, nothing worth even commenting on, really. And then the, then the Beatles came along and everything, then the band thing started. And I was the same age as all these people. And the older guys in the studio, who were marvellously well-qualified recording engineers, didn't understand the, the popular music of the day at all. So it was left to us kids to do. So, I mean, I remember, I remember taking the average age of, of a session... And that was everybody there, all the musicians, the producer and the engineer, and the average age was 17. Really? Yeah. That would have been about 1960, 61. Oh, yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah. So the, we sort of, we took over, really. Yeah. Um, so I, I, it turned out I wasn't bad at engineering. I was a pretty good sound engineer. And I, by the time I was, I don't know, about 21, I suppose, I, I was, I got to be senior engineer of the studio and I thought, well, I, this is it. I can't go any further because in those days there was no such thing as a, as a producer, an engineer becoming a producer. So they, somebody they were would completely just... separate careers. Oh, were they? Well, equally in those early days, up, up through the big middle of the 60s, really, producers weren't called producers, they were A&R men and they worked for the record company 
uh, and their job was to sign talent, to find material for them to record, and then to take them in the studio and make the record, do the job of what a producer. And they would do that. Wow. And they were called A and R men. Yes. Now the A and R man exists today, but his role is purely to find and sign the talent, and then select a, a producer to go in and actually make the record. The A and R man doesn't produce anymore, but in those days he did. So there was, there, initially there was no such thing as a as an independent producer. Then. A guy called Shel Talmy turned up in the United Kingdom. He was an independent producer. And he signed The Who and The Kinks, and I, I was his engineer. So we had a good, good degree of success. I mean, we were churning out quite a lot of stuff in those days. And then I just got bored with it. And I, I got myself a record deal as a singer, and I made a record. And I get handed in my notice at IBC, and off I sailed <gasps> in, <laughs> over you? the edge of a... <laughs> <laughs> into obscurity, <laughs> which was Glenn. quite an experience. Quite. What funny. did you sing? Oh, I, I made three or four records. They were. Oh. They were. I did. A, I did a Stones cover. I can't remember what it was called now. Lady Jane. Yeah, I can't. I recorded Lady Jane with the Stones, and I thought, well, I'll get in quick and do a cover of it. And someone else had the same idea, and they'd already. I can't even remember what his name was now. Anyway, he got his record out before mine, so mine never even got released. Oh, how tiresome. Yeah, yeah, very, very <laughs> annoying. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so you went back to the studio. Well, then, then Shell Talmy, this guy, producer Shell Talmy, called me and said, look, will you, I'm in terrible trouble here. Would you consider going back to IBC? Because he knew that my singing career <laughs> was diving. So I said, no, I'm not, I'm not going back there. So he said, well, would you go back if I paid you? as a freelance so I said I can't imagine that anybody would ever let you do that you know no studio there was no such thing as a freelance engineer so I said well hold on a minute so I, I, I said I'll call you back I rang IBC the guy that ran IBC who I didn't like very much I must be honest and um, I said how's things and he said well it's business is a bit slack since you left so I said well would you consider taking me back as a freelance so he said, absolutely. So I negotiated an hourly fee with him. And then I rang Shell Talmy back and said, OK, if you're, you, pay, you can pay me an hourly fee. So I got an hourly fee from both ends. Well done. And, and went straight back in. And that lasted a few months. And the rest of the staff at IBC got really miffed because they were, I was always in the big studio and they weren't getting any work really. So. Glyn, can you tell me how it works? Imagine if I was a, a young singer and I wanted to make a record, would I ask you to be my producer or would I find a record company that wanted to back me or would I have to do pay with it all for my own money? In the traditional way of things, an artist would perform and then send demo tapes to a record company and try and get signed to a deal with the record company. So then would the record company the ask you to be the producer? It, it, it would, with a brand new act... Yeah. I would, uh, if a brand new act came to me, I would ask them, or well, perhaps I might recommend them to a label, but invariably I am re retained, well, I'm always retained by the label. Okay. Very, very, very rarely by the artist. I mean, it can very often be the artist's choice to have me work with them if they're an established artist. Yes. Um, and, but the record company would have to agree with it. 
because they're paying for it. It's their business. After. Right, of course. I wouldn't want to be an artist starting off now. I wouldn't. Well, mind you, I'm I'm 94 years old. I've, I've lost the plot completely. I, I don't think a label's necessary now. But surely a producer is. Say if you've got a band, you need someone who's you know one step away from the band members who can actually say, actually, you could be a bit louder or. I've, I think it's incredibly difficult for anyone, any artist to produce themselves. Just, just purely because, because you need some objectivity from, yes. from the outside. Yeah. Equally, I think it's incredibly difficult for any artist to find the right producer. It's not easy. Not a, it's, the worst, it's the worst obstacle an artist has to come over, overcome, I mean. Oh, really? Because yes. they might not suit each other? Well, just because you could, you could have in your record collection a bunch of records produced by an individual and think, well, he's the guy I want, or she's the guy, or the lady I want. Um, but the reality is that nobody really knows, including the artists involved, <laughs> exactly what a producer does. I mean, most of the artists I've worked with, I guarantee you, if you sat them all down and said, well, what did Glyn do? They probably would scratch their heads a bit and maybe say, well, he got a good sound. Or They don't really know. They don't know what I'm saying to one individual in the band when I go out and talk to him privately about what his parties or his attitude or his whatever it is they don't know the overall picture of what I'm trying to achieve or that they're completely understandably they're completely involved with their what they're contributing to the to the record yes I if see. it's a solo artist or a band whatever it is they're completely consumed with them getting the result right for themselves and what I'm doing in the periphery of that a huge portion of which they may not even Notice, and that's that's perfectly fine. I'm used to it, and it's uh, the way it works. Um, it's it's uh, it's it's a phenomenal thing. So therefore, when if if somebody comes to me and says, "Well, I really want to work with you because I like the Led Zeppelin record you made, or whatever," yeah. I go, "Well, that's great, but you don't you know you don't really know." <laughs> but the, obviously, I've got a massive collect, collection of work that people can judge me by, but you never really know until you get in a room with somebody how they work, for example, or whether you're going to get on. I mean, I'll always try and have some sort of social inactivity with who, someone I'm going to work with before I agree to do it. It's essential, really. Yeah, of course so it is. sort of you've got a, an essence of who they well, are. Well, you've got, you've got to have a respect for each other for start off, yes. before you go anywhere. And then the, the, you, I have to tailor the way I work to the way the artist is comfortable working. It isn't the other way around. The most important person is the artist always in any creative situation. It has to be. Yeah. Have you ever sort of come to blows, not physical, but blows musically with, you know, with, with an artist because you know what's right, you know what you can hear, and they think they're thinking of a... I, I have a sort of dual role. One is a responsibility to the record company who are paying for this uh, to try and make us as commercially successful a product as possible. That's one role. And the other role, which supersedes that, is a duty, a responsibility to the artist to help the artist achieve what they want. Yes. So if I completely disagree with somebody about what they're trying to achieve, whatever their idea is, um, then I will try, in as pleasant a way as possible, to try and persuade them and lean them in the direction I think they should go. And if they are clearly upset by that or disturbed by that, then I will back off completely and 
I will try and facilitate their idea okay. without any question at all. And that's absolutely imperatively important I see. to my role I without see. any question. Because it's them that we're all, that's why we're all there. Hello? Yes. It's, <laughs> I'm yeah. there because of them, yeah. not the other way around. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's so the, the two roles, the, the commercial aspect from the record company's point of view and what I just described with the artist can, be, can conflict quite strongly. But at the end of the day, the reason why that record company signed that artist is because they believed in them. Right. How many albums have you made, would you say? No, I don't know, but it, it's... It's got to be in the hundreds. I would think. Yeah, if you include the stuff it is an engineer, yeah, absolutely, yeah, easily. Glenn, how lovely to well, know you've made all that music. You've well, been there contributing I, yeah. to it. Contributed, make it really. No, I, but I, I mean, you know. contributed in a way, yeah. That's, it's the, the job of an engineer, I think. I don't think engineers get enough credit. There are a lot of, there are, listen, there are lots of engineers that do a great job and, and it's fine, but there are one or two who, who have this extraordinary perception of sound. Al Schmidt being probably the king in my book. He's an American engineer. He died last year. He was probably the finest engineer in the world in where, my, where in did my he, book. Where did he record? He, in Los Angeles. Okay. He was based in Los Angeles. Worked mostly at Capitol. But he worked with everybody from, from uh, Frank Sinatra. Right, I mean, just... Large orchestral stuff was his forte, really. Yeah. Um, just, but the sweetest man you'll ever meet. Anyway, that's nothing to do there. You could have the same piece of music with the same musicians in the same studio and two or three different engineers. It would, it would not sound anything like the same. It would be quite different. So it's always the perception of the engineer as to how things should be balanced. Uh, you wouldn't think it would make that much difference, and to some people it might not. But to the discerning ear, it makes a massive difference. How interesting. Yeah. It's all to do with perspective. It's, it's, it's what's equally interesting to me is one really will never know how any individual perceives sound, whether you perceive sound in the same way that I do, because I don't know what you, I can't hear what you're hearing precisely, or how you receive sound and how you interpret it. Yes. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? It's very it, interesting. It is. Uh, so I guess, that we're, I guess there's some common thread, otherwise we wouldn't all have similar opinions about different pieces of music. Now you've got a son who I think is very clever as an engineer, producer as well. Yeah. I first, by mistake, I bought a record that I thought was quite good in a record shop, shows how long ago it was. Yeah. And, um, I got home and I thought, my God, this is so fabulous. So I kept playing. Play and then I decided to have a look and see who had done it. Ethan. Yeah. Can this be true? Can I'm it be related to you? I'm incredibly proud of him, as you can imagine. Yeah. First of all, he's an incredibly accomplished musician. Is he? Oh, blimey. Yeah. What does he play? He plays the drums and he plays guitar. In fact, he'd play, play anything, plays keyboards too. But he's he's really, really good drummer and a really, really good guitar player. Um, and a lot of the stuff that he, the records that he makes, he does play on. Not always, but very yeah. often. Um, so he's, he brings a lot more to the party than I ever did. I mean, he's, he actually performs on the records as well as produces. Okay. Um, he made the last two or three Tom Jones albums, and he's about, <coughs> funny enough, he's about to go back in with him uh, next week, I think. Also, Kings and Leon, Ethan did the early Kings and Leon stuff, which you may not be familiar with, but no. they, they were a very raw rock and roll band from 
southern states of America, I'm not quite sure, maybe Nashville area, I can't remember. But um, we've worked together over the years on yeah. odd occasion. I've used him as a musician on several things I've done. Um, but the most recent thing I've done, uh, Ethan was a massive help on. I was asked to make a compilation album of Christine McVie's solo work. Now, I'd never really paid a lot of attention to Fleetwood Mac or, or Christine McVie, to be honest, but was made aware very quickly as a result of being asked to do this. What an extraordinary, marvellous songwriter she is. I mean, she's quite remarkably good. Yeah. So I went through all her solo at the back catalogue of stuff and I've selected some material to remix and sort of cheer up a bit and sort of make it a bit more, well, just different from what it had been. And I got Ethan to come and play drums and guitar on a lot of the stuff. And we got to spend, I think it was 10 days in the studio together working recently. Oh, um, fun. That was just brilliant. We had the best time. He covered my ass <laughs> brilliantly. Uh, yeah, and he even brought his oldest daughter, Delilah, along for five of the days, I think, you know, to, so she could have a look at what oh, was going on. And she is apparently going to become his assistant when she leaves school and learn to become an engineer, I guess. Uh, wow. So there'll be three generations of this. Wow. Asset. Yeah. Now, we did actually, Glyn, when I asked you if you'd like to do this podcast, and I said it's called Cocktails with Patty, you said, I don't drink cocktails. <laughs> Glenn, you must drink something. We're going to uh, go to a pub or something. What would you drink? Um, but if I'm it was early evening... Early evening, whiskey. You'd like a whiskey? Whiskey and water. No, definitely... Uh, I'd have a wee I'd have a whiskey. I'm not that fussy about whiskey. As long no. as you know. And if I was in LA, I might have a margarita or something, but that's... I, you know, I'm not really into cocktails. No, just need one. That's all I need. It's sort of like a nice perker for the evening. But as this is very early in the day, it's a bit we too can't soon. possibly think no. about drinking a cocktail. I always love seeing you. My God, how many years have we known each other? Many, many, many. And then, of course, the funny thing that happened to us both was that we became related for a little bit. We did. My brother married your sister. <laughs> you couldn't have made it up, could you? <laughs> and we were horrified, you and I, weren't we? We were. God. Well, actually... Yeah, it I... seemed... <laughs> I wasn't sure how it seemed, but it was kind of odd. Yeah. It was. And we thought it, it was. was funny. They probably didn't think it was as funny as we did. The other thing, whenever I think of you, I think of the fact that two of the best songs ever written, love songs ever written, were written about you, and they were both with people that I worked with. One of, I cut one of them. I produced one of them, Wonderful Tonight, with Eric. And I cut the demo of Something in the Way She Moves with George. And I think there should be a statue of you somewhere. Because oh. you, inspired, <laughs> you inspired two phenomenal songs. They are. Something in the Way She Moves is just a beautiful song. And the, the demo he cut with me when we were doing Get Back, well, you know, he came to me and said, would I wait behind after everyone else had gone one night? I love this story, Glyn. So he was even then, little George was a little slightly insecure about his song. He was about to record, so he didn't want to um, it's, it's, let it's the others hear because it first. It, it is, he it wanted is, you to hear it first. Well, he, I think he just wanted it recorded. 
if if there had been anyone else there, they'd have done the same thing, I'm sure. It, I can't believe he was that insecure, but that, that maybe there was another reason. Maybe he felt he could only really deliver the performance he wanted without anyone else interfering when, when no one else was there. I mean, yeah. that's equally true. But I do know that he came in the control room and I played it, played it back to him. He just played guitar and sang. Um, and he said, you know, he looked at me and said, well, what do you think? And uh, I mean, I, my jaw was on the floor. Was, I said, what are you talking about? Well, I think it's fantastic. You know, oh. it's ridiculous. Yeah. Extraordinary. And Eric's Wonderful Tonight. That was the first song we cut on the Slow Hand, Slow Hand album. Yeah. Uh, we started the session at 2.30 in the afternoon. We had it finished, completely finished by 5.30 in three hours, the whole thing. The band had been on the road prior to those sessions uh, for some time, I think. They'd done a tour of America. Right, so they were quite uh, warmed up. And they were warmed up. Yeah. They were ready to rock, basically. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. It was still... It was just like falling off a log. It was just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Great start to the to to the album, to the recording of the album. And of course, he wrote it while I was getting ready to go to a party. Yes. And I heard only the other day, as in February two thousand and twenty-two, that we were going to Jimmy Page's party. He told me. I didn't know Jimmy Page had parties. No, he only had one party. <laughs> Isn't that extraordinary to know? The complete the end oh, of that brilliant. story. Yeah, absolutely. So he wrote it. He actually later. wrote the whole thing while you were getting changed. While I was getting ready, because of course I couldn't think what on earth to wear. You know, try on trousers, skirts, dresses, hair up, down. You know, sideways. <laughs> well, Glenn, I just want to thank you, darling, so so much. That's all right. For doing this little chat with me kidding. and Matt. Yeah. <laughs> My pleasure. No, it's been uh, very interesting for me as well. Yeah. <laughs> or not. <laughs> <laughs> Lynn, I will always love you. Well, that was absolutely fantastic talking to Glyn. Dear Glyn Johns, I mean, he, my God, he is so talented, so, so talented, and um, very kind of him to do this wonderful podcast with us, uh, to find the time to do it. I know he's still really busy, even at his age. <laughs> Um, Glyn, thank you so much. That was a great episode. Yeah, absolutely incredible episode. Amazing to meet him as well. Uh, thank you, uh, Glyn, for um, giving us the time. Uh, it was great to meet you and, and hear your stories. And um, if you enjoyed uh, this episode, um, let us know by uh, leaving a, a like or subscribing um, to the YouTube channel um, and, uh, and share it uh, with your friends. Let them know um, what you thought of the episode. And uh, if you want to stay connected to the podcast, you can find everything podcast-related at pattyspodcast.co.uk. And for everything else, you can go to pattyboy.co.uk. And uh, we will be back again very soon.